Can I have you all turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14? And as always, if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to have you here this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We have entered into four, chapter 14. This morning we want to read verse 27. John 14, 27, where the Lord Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Uh, Jesus' disciples were about to enter some of the most difficult days of their lives. As the Lord was preparing to go to the cross the next day and after his resurrection to eventually return back to his Father in heaven. He had been talking about this all evening. They are in the upper room celebrating the Passover together. They're about ready to leave the upper room to make their way through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Mount of Olives, the end of chapter 14. He says, Arise, let us go from here. But they're in the upper room. Judas has by this time departed to carry out his betrayal of Christ. And so it's just Jesus and his 11 closest men at this point. And he knows that his words have thrown uh, their hearts into a tizzy. They're just beside themselves with anxiety and fear, which is why he went on to say to repeat at the end of verse 27 something he opened our chapter 14 with. He said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When you read that, do you notice something unusual? He didn't say hearts. He said heart. He was talking to 11 guys. But he used the singular. Why do you think he did that? Because God doesn't deal with us as a group. He deals with us as individuals. Everyone in this room is precious to him individually. Don't think because you're a part of this church, well, God only loves me because I'm a part of that church. He loves those guys. No way. And the Lord is telling each one of us here this morning, don't let your heart be troubled. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But because the anxiety and fear had gripped his disciples' hearts, the Lord made to them, and all, to all of his disciples, including us in this room, a precious promise. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Guys, this is a special supernatural peace, the kind of peace that the world can't offer and owes, knows nothing about. When Jesus said that, the peace he gives to those who belong to him was not the kind of peace the world gives to troubled hearts. He was talking about the fallen world system, which is controlled by the devil. Look, the devil knows that people can't function in an environment of stress, turmoil, anxiety, and fear for very long without seeking some kind of relief. We're just not wired that way. We can't function in that kind of environment. So, you know, we have to try to alleviate the stress in some way. Otherwise, we may have a nervous breakdown. We can just, it's a survival mechanism. And so the devil, though, is the one that ramps up all this stress and anxiety, doesn't he? He's the one that is, you know, trying to push us into situations that bring stress and so on. And after he ramps up the stress and fear in people's life, uh, lives, he then tempts them to grab for peace, quote-unquote, through artificial means. The kind of so-called peace 
that the devil, and of course through him the world, offers people, comes through drugs, alcohol, hypnosis, transcendental meditation, yoga, or whatever else will quote-unquote help a person escape the pressures they are experiencing in life. If their stress and lack of peace is the result of a volatile combative marriage, which is a lot going on a lot today, the devil tells them the only peace they will have in that situation is separation and or divorce. In other words, a peace that comes from escaping the situation by running away. In extreme times of anxiety, pressure, and depression, the devil tries to push these folks into the ultimate escape, which is suicide. Uh, guys, it's no mistake or accident that as our society devolves more and more into COVID madness, uh, chaos, confusion, and anarchy, that alcoholism, drug abuse, and suicides have risen exponentially. In contrast to this, Jesus said that he wants to give us true peace. True peace. Not like the world gives, which is, again is artificial and often destructive. This peace is only found in Jesus. It says, Paul the Apostle said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace. True peace doesn't come from a pill. doesn't come from a program. It's only found in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. In John 14, in this final discourse to his disciples the night before his crucifixion, uh, Jesus introduces the subject of supernatural peace. Well, he knew they needed to hear something like this. Uh, they were extremely anxious, worried, fearful, stressed out. He's going away. We can't go with him. What is that going to mean to us? Oh, and by the way, Jesus, you got to carry on the work of the kingdom without me. Oh, my goodness, you know. Uh, they were just beside themselves with anxiety, stress, and so on. And so he immediately launches into the subject of supernatural peace that he alone can give them and would give them. Now that was introduced in chapter 14. As you come to chapter 16, he revisits that topic, or we could say he brings it to a climax and conclusion when he says in John 16:33, these things I have spoken to you that in me, don't miss that, in me, again, peace is not in a pillar program, it's in a person, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Notice, Jesus didn't promise that he would give us peace by taking away all the problems and pain in life. He promised to give us a supernatural peace, listen, during are in the midst of the trials, tribulations, and pain that we would experience in this world. I've told you this before, but there's a lot of new faces. I'm going to share it again. Years ago, there was a contest in a, t a town in uh, New Mexico. I don't remember the town's name. It was obviously an artsy community. And uh, they decided to give uh, a prize to the artist who could best capture the concept of peace on canvas. And so a bunch of guys entered. Well, second place went to an artist who depicted a very calm meadow on a summer day. Sun was out, birds, you couldn't hear them chirping, but you could see them there. You know, you assume they're chirping, right? Uh, you know, the grass was flourishing, flowers were blooming. Just a real peaceful picture, right? He didn't win. 
First place went to an artist that painted a storm. It was dark. You could tell the winds were blowing. The rain was almost horizontal. Uh, you know, you had all this trees were bending over and dark and all and in the rain. And in the midst of all of this storms, in the cleft of the rock, there was a little sparrow fast asleep. That's Christian peace. It's not the absence of storms or adversity. It's peace in the midst of storms and adversity in life. Now, guys, the Bible talks about two different kinds of peace that are associated with God. Peace with God and the peace of God. And let me say this. You cannot know the peace of God until you first experience peace with God. So for this first one, turn to Romans chapter 5. Peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1. Paul said, therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, that simply means after a person has been saved. All right? What it means to be justified by faith, you're saved. Okay? So, after a person has been saved, Paul said, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's word teaches us that when we were born into this world, we were born as children of Adam separated from God through the fall, and at enmity with him. And that simply means we were rebels at war with God. Having the wrath of God or the judgment of God hanging over our heads or abiding upon us, as Jesus said in John 3, verse 36. The Bible teaches that at one time God also considered us his enemies. In other words, he was at enmity with fallen men as well. Now, let me just stop and say this, okay? Yes, there are people who go through life determined not to speak with God, not to speak of God, uh, not to acknowledge His presence in any way, not to bow to His will for their lives especially. In other words, they're at war with God. Why are they at war with God? Well, because they blame Him for some tragedy or disappointment they have suffered in life. Maybe uh, they lost someone dear to them, to sickness or an accident of some kind a spouse or a child or someone else that was very dear to them, had a very special relationship with this person. And because they're gone, because they were taken, they blame God. Like God could have stopped it because he didn't. I hate him. I want nothing to do with God. And so whether they realize it or not, they've declared war against God in their hearts. But most people don't even know that they're at war with God. They would say, I've, I've never been, at, you're telling them, well, you know, the Bible says you're at war with God. They'd say, I've never been at war with God. I like God. And as proof of their like or love for God, they point to how religious they are. How many times they go to church, you know, uh, how they're involved in their church and so on. What they don't realize is that re religion is another form of rebellion against God. People think that religion is a way to have a relationship with God. But the relationship that God wants to have with them is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's not a religion. We, we Christians say Christianity, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day, and they were trying to get a friend to come to church. And the person said to this other person, well, I don't like going to church because I hate religion. Now, I've had people say that to me over the years. 
And I always respond by saying, yeah, I do too. <laughs> and most importantly, Jesus ate a religion. Religion is man-made rules, regulations, ceremonies, and so on that are designed to help people feel like they're getting close to God or that they know God. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ based on you accepting him as your Savior and you become one with God in that regard. But a lot of folks are very religious and they think they have a relationship with God. They don't. They don't realize their religion is actually a form of rebellion. If God says, here's the only way you can know me through my son, and I push Jesus aside and say, well, no, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to go to Mass because I was Roman Catholic and light the candles and pray the rosaries, and, and that's how I'm going to get close to God. You are in rebellion against God. The Jewish people were very religious, but they were also very rebellious in that when Jesus came, which Judaism pointed them to the Messiah, which they rejected. They rejected Jesus, right? When Jesus hung in the cross at the very instant he bowed his head and dismissed the spirit, the veil of the temple, this extremely thick uh, woven wall of cloth was ripped from top to bottom, signifying was God's way of saying open house. You don't have to come to me through a priesthood anymore. You come to me, to me through, your, through my son, right? What did the Jewish people do? Rejoice that Judaism was over and they could just have this wonderful relationship with God with all this uh, what are all these animal sacrifices and ceremonies? No, you know what they did? They sewed it back up and keep, kept on practicing their religion. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 10, I have a zeal for my Jewish brethren. They're my people. But they, being ignorant of God, have not availed themselves to the truth of God. In other words, they, have kept practice, they keep practicing religion because they think it's a way to be righteous before God. They don't realize that the righteousness that God is accepting into heaven is the righteousness that comes through Christ. So even though they have a zeal about God, for God, they are ignorant of the truth of God. And it's sad that many religious people are ignorant because they want to be ignorant. They love their religion. They put a lot of work into it. They've kept a lot of rules over the years. Okay? Uh, now you come along and say none of that matters just believe in Jesus Pharisees hated that they persecuted Christians vehemently because of that they couldn't let go of their works Paul was a Pharisee at one time said look all my works all my life I did for God I count as dung that I might gain the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and consider that true gain right you have to abandon that right so but getting back to my point I was making the Bible presents a picture of God and man at enmity with each other. Think of it in your mind's eye like this. Uh, God and man with their backs toward each other, with their arms folded. They're mad, okay? There's enmity there. But then Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And at that moment, God's righteousness was satisfied because sin had now been paid for. The result was that God turned now and faced toward man with his arms extended. I love you. Sin has been paid for. It's no longer an issue. And God turned towards man with his arms extended and said, come to me. I don't care what you've done. I can forgive you now. My son paid it all. Man still had his back toward God with his arms folded. See, this was the picture, right? But God was inviting 
man to come. Those that responded to God's offer and turned towards God by accepting Jesus Christ for salvation, that person at that instant was forgiven, saved, and now in perfect loving fellowship with God. Imagine, if you will, God and man now both facing one another in blessed communion, oneness, with each other, perfect fellowship. This is what Paul meant in Romans 5, verse 1, when he said, having been justified by faith, saved, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, guys, the war is over. The war is over. We have laid down our hostility toward God and his commandments, surrendered our lives to him in obedience as his servants, and he in turn has forgiven us, adopted us into his family, and now we are one with him. We are part of the family of God. Now listen, peace with God, salvation, is essential. If we're going to experience the second kind of peace the Bible talks about for the child of God. Turn to Philippians 4. First comes peace with God. And that then leads to the peace of God. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Listen, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let me say this. Peace with God is objective, whereas the peace of God is subjective. In Romans 5, verse 1, when Paul talks about us having peace with God, when we receive Jesus as our Savior, the Greek is in the present tense. In other words, it's something that exists right now. In other words, this isn't a peace we're waiting for in the future. It's a peace that is ours right now from the moment we accept Jesus as our Savior. When I say that the peace, that, that peace with God is objective and not subjective, I mean it isn't based on feelings. So much Christianity today is based on feelings instead of what, on what God has said in his word, right? It, it, some churches have made a whole ministry out of this. It's all about feelings. Uh, doctrine, they say, divides. We don't want to spend a lot of time on doctrine because people get uncomfortable. It divides. We want them to feel good when they come here. Peace with God is not a feeling. Because feelings come and go, they ebb and flow, they're up, they're down, and so on. They change depending on the circumstance at the moment, whatever circumstance uh, we're living with uh, at that moment. Um, peace with God is based on the objective truth that we entered into this peace when we accepted Jesus Christ by faith. You may not have felt anything. I know some people, when they prayed to receive Jesus, they fell on the ground weeping, so grateful some people just say amen and walk away. If they both receive Christ into their heart, changes will start to happen, right? But, you know, people, they have some of these glorious experiences. Now, I didn't have an experience, right? Uh, I felt bad about that for a long time. I mean, shouldn't I have had an experience? And finally, you realize, no, God doesn't give experiences to everybody, all right? Some people he does, some people he doesn't. It's not the feelings, though. 
When you pray to receive Jesus, it's God's word says if you do that with all your heart, you're saved. Oh, but I didn't feel anything. Doesn't matter. It's objective truth, okay? You'll feel stuff down the road if you're really saved. Your attitudes are going to change. Your love for God's going to blossom. Uh, you're going to see all kinds of stuff begin to happen. But right now, it's not about feelings. That's peace with God. It's objective. Peace, the peace of God is subjective because, uh, because it's a, a peace that's a day-by-day -day thing, moment-by-moment -moment peace, uh, that kind of thing. And because of where we are in our walk with God at any given moment, this peace can come and go. Now, let me put that, on, that thought and hold for a minute and come back to it. Uh, because this is the peace that we as Christians, at this moment in our lives, are most concerned about having. So hang on to that. Let me go back and just say this. As I just said, the peace of the world, which in reality is simply peace due to escapism, is the kind of peace that King David flirted with, and I think many Christians do. King David was going through a rough time, okay, and pressure was on, and all this stress in his life. And he said in Psalm 55, you can read it on your own, I'll start with verse 4, he said, my heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. He was in a bad place, right? A lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. What did he say? He said, oh, that I had wings like a dove so I could fly away and be at peace. You ever feel that way? Well, many people not only feel that way, they actually do it. They actually run away from a stressful situation. Marriage, work, whatever it might be. They think that escaping will give them peace. David said it here. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest, be at peace. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Let me just get away from It's all these people around me that are the problem. If I could just get alone, then I could be at peace. Verse 8, I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. A lot of people believe that that's the kind of peace that is going to help them. Um, but it's a false peace due to escapism. Most often escapism through the use of drugs and or alcohol. And listen. If you're going through a lot of pressure and you got a lot of anxiety, you know, if you turn to alcohol or you pop some pills, you will feel some peace. I mean, it's going to numb you to the pain, to the stress. But it's not a true and lasting peace. It's an artificial peace that will ultimately lead a person into dependency to that drug or whatever that substance is and ultimately into bondage where... You know, the cure, quote-unquote, is worse than the problem. And the devil loves that. He pushes you into the problem, then offers you a cure. Well, here, just pop these pills. You'll feel much better. What he's trying to do is, he's trying to use a problem to create an even bigger problem. A lot of folks that turn to alcohol and some even prescription medicines to calm them down in stressful times. And they got dependent on those things. After a while, the cure, quote-unquote, became worse than the actual problem. That's the devil, right? Whereas the peace that comes from Jesus is real, it's lasting, and it is liberating. It is a true peace that the world knows nothing about, 
because it's a supernatural peace that comes directly from God. And as Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 7, it surpasses human understanding. The world can't understand this kind of peace. The peace of God is a peace that only a child of God can experience because, listen to me, folks, it's an attribute of God's divine nature. And the only way for a person to experience any attribute of God, and the attributes of God are simply listed uh, in part in the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of those are a part of God's nature. And the only way for a person to enjoy any of those attributes, the attributes of God, is to have the is to experience. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the only way for a person to experience any attribute of God in their life, again, all of which are exclusive to His nature, is to have God is to have God's nature planted within them, planted within them. And that only happens when they receive Jesus into their heart as their Savior, and the Holy Spirit moves in. Holy Spirit's God, right? I mean, you can't experience something that is only in God if God then, God has to be in you then, right? That's what it means to be born again or born of the Spirit. When you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior at that very moment, Peter tells us, 2 Peter 1.4, you became a partaker of God's divine nature. God moved in. And now all the attributes of God are available to you. The love, the joy, the peace, all of it. Now the world tries to counterfeit the attributes of God or the fruits of the Spirit. The world can offer cheap substitutes, happiness and, uh, and peace, and, and all, again, through drugs and alcohol. It's all cheap copies. And it doesn't uh, give you anything that's real or true. It just takes away after a while. It robs you of even more of what you have. Satan wants to kill, steal, steal, kill, and destroy. That's the idea. And that's what he's all about doing, right? But this supernatural peace is part of God's, an attribute of God's nature. The only way for us to experience, experience is to have God's nature within us. That comes to the new birth by accepting Christ as our Savior. But let me just say this to you. The peace of God, once you're saved, doesn't happen automatically once you become a Christian. Many Christians still worry. Many Christians still experience stress. Many still have nervous breakdowns. And some even still commit suicide. I had known at least one in my ministry. The reason is, well, why do Christians experience these things still? Are we born again? Uh, are we children of God? Why is it that I'm still depressed? Why is it that I am so fearful and have so much anxiety and I've been contemplating suicide? Why is that? Is God letting me down? No. No, you're, you know, it's like when the children of Israel didn't obey God and um, they, they were defeated. I didn't plan to say this, but uh, um, Joshua 7, you can read it on your own. And God promised to give them victory in the promised land. They entered in. They, they had victory over the people of Jericho, went up against a pretty small, insignificant town called Ai. They got their, their snot kicked out of them. Joshua falls on his face before God in his chambers and blames God for not being faithful. God said, get up. Get up. I have not gone back on my word. Israel has violated what I said. They took some of the 
spoil and brought it into their own tent. That's why you couldn't stand against your enemy. God never lets us down. If we get let down, it's because we've done something to violate what God has said. It's always our fault. It's never God's fault. You know he's faithful and true, right? Anything that goes wrong, I guarantee, look in the mirror, you'll find the problem. Many Christians still experience stress and worry, anxiety. Why is that? Because they're not following the biblical injunctions for maintaining practical, everyday peace in their hearts. Remember what Paul said in Colossians 3.15? He said, let the peace of God rule in your heart. You hear that? Let the peace of God rule in your heart. By saying this, Paul is implying that the peace of God can rule in our heart if we let it. If we don't hinder or strangle it to death through worry, you know, worry is traced back to a German root for, to strangle. We can worry ourselves, through worry, we can strangle all the peace that God has for us. How do we do that? By focusing our thoughts on the problem instead of on the God who can solve any problem. Turn to Isaiah 26. This is a great verse on this topic. Hopefully you'll mark it down, highlight it. Isaiah 26, verse 3. The prophet is saying to God, you will keep him or her, of course, in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The Hebrew is literally, you will keep him in peace, peace. What does that mean? Double peace. Perfect peace is the idea. Okay? But to experience this peace, you need to have your thoughts stayed or fixed on God. Because you trust Him. And have absolute confidence in Him. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says something that, uh, I don't know if it's, Confusing in some way to some, but let me just read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Paul admonished us, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you, for you who are Christians. Notice that Paul says, in everything give thanks, not for everything give thanks. Right? I can thank God in everything. I can't thank him for everything, right? Let's tell him first service. I go to work. I'm having a good day. Then my boss calls me in the office. He has to let me go. They're cutting back. Okay, that's not good. Go out to my car. I got two flat tires. Got to call an Uber. I get home. My house is burned down. Now look, only a crazy person says, Oh, God, I want to praise you for all of this. What are you, nuts? It's like, Lord, okay, you've got my attention. Uh, is all of this because you are wanting to make a great change in my life? Maybe a complete life directional change. So I'm going to thank you in this because you never allow things to happen, but what they don't have a purpose. And the purpose is to draw me closer to you 
to be used more powerfully for your glory and so on. But we are commanded to in everything give thanks to God as believers. However, you won't thank God in everything until you first learn to trust God in everything. And trusting God in everything won't be possible unless you believe three things about him. Now, about once a year, I will repeat these things to you guys. So some of you have heard them before. May I, will you please indulge me that I would repeat these today? Because I see a lot of new faces. I think we ought to revisit this once a year to remind ourselves, right? Again, thank God in everything. I can't, I won't thank God in everything until... I first learned to trust God in everything. I won't learn to trust God in everything unless I believe three things about him. Here they are. First of all, that God is sovereign. And along with the idea of God being sovereign is the fact that he's all-powerful. Theologians call it omnipotence. He's omnipotent, right? All-powerful. Guys, this means that not only is God aware of everything that touches my life, it further means that he is in absolute control of everything that touches my life that's what sovereignty means it means that god is in complete control which means that he is all powerful when it comes to the circumstances of my life nothing happens in my life except what god allows for his purposes now this gets a little thorny because what about overt sin what if a person a christian gets into overt sin can we say well that was that god's plan for my life uh, no, I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm talking about somebody who's walking with God, who is living in obedience, and some tragedy happens or adversity befalls them. We can have confidence. Look, I didn't bring this on myself. It wasn't self-inflicted. So, therefore, God, um, I'm going to be confident that you've orchestrated, you've allowed this to happen. Oh, what about when I do mess up? Well, God loves you. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and he can take the mess we've made and he can somehow fix it and even use it for his glory in some way although that might not be his best will for your life okay but nothing happens in my life except what god allows for his purposes because he is sovereign the classic verse on this we all know romans 8 28 and we know that all things work together for good to those that love god to those that who are the called according to his purpose it doesn't say we see all things working together for our good. It says we know it by faith. How? Because of what God has told us in his word. That's why we have to know the word. If, if you don't know the word, let me put you in this illustration. A Christian who is lazy about studying and reading God's word is like a pilot in an airplane who is blind they can't see the instruments they're flying by feelings I think it was how Lindsay years ago wrote a book called combat faith he actually he actually talked about a pilot who uh, was not instrument rated yet didn't know how to read his instruments and he was going to get back to the airport before but he got caught in a storm and was really bad and he started flying by feelings all he could do well he couldn't see so he's flying by feelings his feelings misled him, as they often will. He didn't realize at one point he was flying upside down, and he came in and he crashed and died. Hal Lindsey's uh, point was, look, you have to have faith if you're going to navigate your way through this world, and faith comes by the word of God. You have to know the word. 
Otherwise, you're flying blind. You're flying based on your feelings. What feels right? Forget what feels right. The devil is a master of manipulating feelings. You've got to know what the Bible says and set a course straight and true according to what God has said in his word. Now listen, the fact that God is sovereign, which includes the idea that he's all-powerful, wouldn't comfort me in times of difficulty or adversity if I didn't believe the second truth. And that is that God is an all-loving God who loves me unconditionally. What the theologians call God is omnibenevolent. He's omnipotent. He's also omnibenevolent. He's all love. All love. You see, guys, if God was all-powerful but wasn't all-loving, we'll say that God was all-powerful but a cruel despot. Would that give us any comfort? It wouldn't comfort me. It would terrify me. He just has a lot of power to mess me up, to hurt me. The fact that God is all-powerful and at the same time is all-loving is a tremendous comfort to us. Well, I don't know if God really loves me, though. I mess up a lot. Well, well, join the club. Sure. We all mess up a lot. You ever doubt God's love for you? Read Romans 5. You should check Romans 5, 8 once a month. See if, see if it's still in your Bible. Just saying. Where Paul said, but God demonstrate his, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if Jesus loved you so much before you even knew him that he was willing to die for you. How much more do you think God loves you now that you're his child? Right? We have to understand this. This is what the word says. Oh, but I don't feel like God loves me. Again, stop flying by your feelings. What does the word of God say? I love you with an unconditional love, God says. I love you so much, I gave my son to die for you, and Jesus said, I love you so much, I'm a willing sacrifice. Nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. Guys, the Bible clearly teaches that God's sovereignty and his love always work together for our ultimate good. Our ultimate good. I have to believe that by faith. Because my circumstances don't always indicate that God really loves me or is a good God. Now, this is how the devil works, right? The devil tries to push us into circumstances, or let's just leave him out of it for a second. God is working our lives to make us more and more like Christ, that he might use us more and more for his glory, that we might enter into heaven with a greater reward, right? This is something we have to understand. God is working for our eternal good, not our temporal comfort. We often have it backwards. There's a lot of Christians who think that God exists to make them happy on earth. To, to make them prosperous and healthy and, and, and bless them in all kinds of ways. That's backward. The Bible says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on the earth. You know, that can be, they can be ripped off. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. God is working for your eternal best, not for your temporal comfort. And if he's got to sacrifice some earthly comfort to give you the best eternity possible, he'll do that. That's not an act of, that doesn't indicate God doesn't love you. It's an evidence that he loves you so much he will do whatever it takes to give you the best eternity possible. But the devil is always trying to let, get us to focus on our circumstances 
to get me to judge the love and goodness of God by those circumstances instead of what God has revealed about himself and his word. But listen, these two truths, that God is sovereign, all-powerful, and that God is all-loving, who loves me with all of his heart unconditionally, listen, still wouldn't be enough to comfort me in times of great adversity if I didn't believe one more thing about God. And that is that God is infinitely wise. Infinitely wise. I mean, even if God is all-powerful and all-loving, if he wasn't very wise, he means well, but he's not really that with it. He's like, you know, little senile Uncle Joe. <laughs> Nothing can play. Um, you know, we all have a Crazy Uncle Joe, he's just not, I'm sorry, Joe, I'm looking at Joe. No, not you, I'm sorry. Um, look, if God, even though God was all-powerful and he all-loving, all loving with all his heart, if he wasn't very wise, he might leave my life over a cliff. He might not lead me in the right path for my life, right? It's knowing that God is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-wise that solidifies my trust in him to lead me in the right paths now and ultimately to the right place someday. Look, God is so much wiser than me. Now, I acknowledge that in principle. In practice, I sometimes violate that idea. What do you mean? Um, there are many things that God allows to happen in my life or in the lives of people I'm close to that honestly, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. I mean, I look at the situation and say to myself, if I were God, I wouldn't have let that happen. Or if I, would have, if I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. The problem is I'm not God. And I'm glad for that. The problem is I'm not God. I can't see the big picture like God. I, I have only limited information of the situation. God is all knowledge. I'm working with a little tiny piece of information, and I got it all figured out. We do this with each other, too, don't we? We don't have the whole picture. We don't know all the details. Somebody shares a little piece of gossip. We run with it. We got them all figured out. We're ripping them apart. But we do that with God. This little piece of information never stops me from making judgments based on my limited understanding of a situation, judgments which often cause me to question the wisdom and ultimately the love of God in my life. You know, I wouldn't have done it that way. How could God be a good and loving God? Look what he allowed. This is not the way to do it. I know that. I know nothing. Okay, we know nothing. The problem, Peter says, is that we only see what is near, not that which is afar off. That's the problem. We only see what is right in front of us. God sees the big picture. In other words, we can't see the future. We don't know what is coming down the road tomorrow or next week or next year. God does. And the Bible is teaching us that I need to realize that God is often working in my life today through adversity, preparing me today for what he wants to do in my life tomorrow or next week or next month or five years down the road. I don't understand it at the time, but I have to trust in the character of God. Sure, I don't understand everything. 
But if I trust God, read Job. He couldn't figure out what God was doing. He made accusations against God. God finally appears to Job and takes him on a tour of the universe. You know why I did this and made those stars and these animals and all? And he goes, oh, you know, and Job, no, no, I don't know why. You know, God kept hammering him. Job, you, you know so much, right? You got it all figured out. How about this? How about, why did I do it this way? Why did, and fi finally, Job said, I think I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> I, I think I've, I've talked too much. You know what God did? God never answered one of Job's whys. And he won't often answer our whys because we always have more can answer a hundred whys we got a hundred more so you know what god did with job he just showed job how wise and powerful god is and once job realized that god is so much wiser than him he knows exactly what he's doing and why job said i'm going to just trust in him i don't have to know all the whys i know god that that's one of the most important lessons we can learn in our Christian life. So God, we, guys, we have to understand that, that, you know, God's at work doing something. We don't understand what all the time, but I have to trust. We have to trust in his sovereignty, his love, his wisdom. And let me just say this to you, because those three truths are like a three-legged stool. These truths will hold me up when my circumstances try to knock me down. They will keep me going, uh, and um, by strengthening me in my adversity, they will strengthen my faith in the knowledge that everything is working together for a good purpose in my life. God knows what it is. And again, it's eternal good, not temporal comfort. And I just have to trust that because God loves me with all of his heart and has proven it on the cross of Calvary. Turn to Jeremiah 29 as we bring this to a close. Jeremiah 29 11 is one of my life verses. Maybe it's yours, one of yours. Because every time we start to wonder, well, God, what are you doing, Lord? Why are we doing what? What is this all about? Reread Jeremiah 29 11. God says, Look, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. In other words, I know what I'm doing in your life. You may not understand it. I know I'm working good. I would never do anything just to purposely hurt you for the fun of hurting you. I know the thoughts that I'm thinking toward you. There are thoughts of, of, of hope for the future. Guys, this morning we find ourselves living in difficult times, uncharted territory, which not only affects us, but also our whole country and even the world. Many people feel as though their country is going through a radical transformation that will leave it permanently damaged and unrecognizable. We are living in a time when because of the uncertainty of the future, many people are experiencing a considerable amount of anxiety, fear, and stress. And Christians are not immune. What do we do? We must keep our eyes on our God. He is on the throne. He is working. I don't know what is going to happen to this country. I pray for revival and a great awakening. I hope you are too. I'm not ready to give up on America. Or this may be a time when God is saying the time, if you're going to build a kingdom, the time now is to build my kingdom.
Earthly kingdoms come and go. But God's kingdom is forever. And if we're citizens of God's kingdom, that should be our first priority, our first loyalty. How do we get through this, though? Well, we keep focusing on God, whatever form the storm takes. Focus our thoughts on God. Again, Isaiah 26, verse 3, out of the NLT, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You see, folks, that's the key. That is the key to experiencing this peace, the peace of God, is that you keep your thoughts, your mind fixed on God. How do we do that? We fill our minds with the Word of God. We fill our minds with the Word of God. Psalm 119, verses 11 to 16 the psalmist said, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Remember what Paul said? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is simply trusting in God, right? We're talking about trusting in God to get through all this adversity and worry and stuff like that, stress. How do we fill our minds with more faith or more trust in God? Fill your mind with the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. There is no... We, we, people run to take a pill or they run to take uh, a shot of something. Run to the Word. Open the Word. Turn off the news, Okay? Open the word and just feed on God's word in the Psalms. The many times I have been so stressed with oppression, the enemy just coming at me like a flood. I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. The pressure is so great. I have to pull away from my desk. I've gone outside, put my iPod. Do they still make iPods? I don't think they do. I, I had an iPod. It was all Christian music. Put my headphones on and just started listening to praise music. I cannot tell you what it did. Just, I felt the stress drain out. The, the enemy hates praise. The, the enemy hates when we praise God. You're just sitting there praising the Lord. He runs. He doesn't want to be in the presence of somebody who's praising God. The stress drains out. The peace of God just comes upon you. Same thing is with the Word. Open the Word and just get into the psalm. Just saturate yourself in God's Word. This kind of faith is rooted in absolute confidence in God's strength, his love, his wisdom. Look, I can understand alcoholism, drug abuse. I can even understand suicide. I'm not saying I agree with them, but I can understand how people run to these things to get some peace given the world we're living in. They don't have Jesus. People need peace. If it doesn't come naturally, and folks, today that's pretty much impossible, they will grab for it artificially, as we have talked about. May, might I suggest you get peace supernaturally by receiving Jesus, first of all, into your heart as your Savior, and then abiding in Him by staying in the Word, in prayer with Him? Guys, when your heart is filled with the peace of God, which is, again, a super natural peace the world cannot offer the world doesn't understand 
Because here you are, people at work or your they know you're going through a very difficult period. And yet you have peace. They think you're nuts. What is with you? You should be a, a mess. You should be freaking yourself to death over this thing, whatever it is. What's wrong? What do you do? What is going on? I have Jesus. If I know he's got it covered. He's got it. Everything is in his control. I don't have to worry about it. I belong to him. The world can't figure that kind of peace out. It's the peace that only comes from Jesus. Let's close by reading a few verses out of Psalm 46, and we will end. Psalm 46. I'm going to read the whole psalm today. I'm not going to read it all, just a few verses. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Amen. We just talked about it. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Verse 10, be still and know. Stop being anxious. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen. God is with us. That's what the Emmanuel is all about. Jesus Christ is with us. In fact, he lives inside of us. May God give us grace to draw our strength from him and not worry about what happens around us. Pray, but trust God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, we must remember that you are on the throne. You're sovereign. You're all loving. You are all wise. What are we worried about, Lord? You've got everything covered. And all things are working together for your ultimate purpose, which is Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom on the earth. So, Lord, we pray for America. We ask for a great awakening and revival. But give us grace to keep our eyes on you. And that, Lord, we would live our lives in such a way that we would have your peace upon us as we walk into this crazy world that people would see we're different because we're trusting in you, Lord. And so thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.